1 Samuel chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who are asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to be his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war, and equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to all his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys, and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. This is the reading of the word. Beginning series on the life of David. Last week, we looked briefly at the heart of David. Uh, We kind of got a picture of the man, why the Bible says that David is a man after God's own heart. This week, before we actually get into the life of David proper, I thought we'd go back and look at the context that brought David onto the scene. What was the context of Israel? What was the state of the nation of Israel that required God, that delighted God, that David would come and be the king of Israel? Well, we find kind of a summary of that context here in 1 Samuel 
chapter 8. I'd like to entitle our time this morning what God was saying to the nation of Israel and indeed what he says to us every day of our lives, and that is be careful what you ask for. Be careful what you ask for. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, once again, it is our delight to come here gathered as your called out people, your holy nation, your peculiar people, your chosen ones, that we might show forth the praises of your glory in Christ Jesus to an unbelieving, nay, saying, disobedient world. We thank you, Lord, for your spirit this morning as he comes not only to inhabit our praises, but he comes to open our eyes, to open our ears, and to renew our hearts and minds according to your word. And so we pray that your word would go forth and have its way, accomplishing all that you would design and desire. Do it now for your glory. Do it for the good of your people. Be magnified. May you be the first and the last, the beginning and always, our God and our Savior. In Christ Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, I do believe if you've lived any length of time, then you've heard the sayings. I'm sure we all have. A bird in hand is better than two in the bush. Sure, you've heard that everything that glitters isn't gold. That the grass is not always greener on the other side of the fence. Over and over again, we hear these sayings, and they are reminders to us, ultimately, that our hearts are not to be trusted. That our feelings are are fickle. And that what we are enamored with one day, we are ready to discard the next. We see this with our children. If you have children, had them for any length of time, and you are anything like us, then your house is filled with closets and storage areas that have items that your children just had to have, that were the latest and the greatest toy or game that very soon after got displaced by the latest, greatest toy or game. Closets full of discarded items. We not only see it with our children, we see it with adults. Unfortunately, studies tell us that the divorce rate in America hovers between 40 and 50 percent. And yet even worse than that is second marriages. Second marriages, divorce rate hovers between 60 and 70 percent. Men and women discard the first marriages began to enter into new ones, it seems they learned very quickly that the grass is not always greener on the other side of the 
We not only see it with adults, we not only see it with children, but we also see it with nations. Wasn't but four years ago, the darling of the political year was a young senator from Illinois named Barack Obama. He won many of your hearts with a message of hope and yes, we can. And now, just a mere four years later, many of you are ready to discard him. You saying nope to his hope? And you saying no, we won't to yes, we can. Yet, I say to you, say all the time, be careful. A bird in hand may be better than two in the bush. The grass is not always greener on the other side of the fence. In other words, the lesson that we continue to learn over and over again, that the grass is not always greener on the other side of the fence. You better be careful what you ask for. This is the lesson that the nation of Israel God is trying to teach them in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Give you a little background. If you were here at the time when we went through the book of Judges, you will know that Judges ends with this solemn statement. In those days, there were no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was anarchy. People were turning away from God, turning to their own hearts. And the fickleness and the frailty of our own judgments. It is into this, into this backdrop that God is delighted to raise up another judge. The last of the judges, but he's not in the book of Judges. He comes to us in the book of 1 Samuel. He raises up a judges. He raises up a judge, and his name is Samuel. He raises him up from a young boy to be a judge and a prophet for the nation, to lead and guide the nation, to be a conscience for the nation, to direct them in what thus says the Lord, to direct them in battle and to provide for them leadership that they may be able to conquer their enemies, indeed the Philistines. And this is what Samuel does as he replaces the former prophet Eli. And Samuel becomes judge over the nation. And he judges them with equity and he judges them with truth and he judges them according to the will and in obedience to God. But as we get to 1 Samuel chapter 8, the Bible says that Samuel has grown old. 
And he's no longer able to function in the office that God has called him. And it's time for a transition. It's time for a new leadership to come along. What does Samuel do? Samuel points his sons. Samuel points his sons. And here begins the lesson that God wants to teach the nation that he's going to teach us this morning. You better be careful what you ask for. For we see here the failure of Samuel's sons, don't we? The Bible says that Samuel was old and could no longer function in the role that God had called him. It was time for him to pass the mantle. And Samuel decides that he's going to pass the mantle to his sons. But Samuel's sons were not up for the task. Samuel's sons were like the sons of Eli. If you're familiar with the story in 1 Samuel chapter 2, Eli, who was prophet before Samuel, had sons as well. But the Bible says and calls Eli's sons SOBs, sons of Belial. Sons of Belial, because they were wicked, they were ungodly. And here the Bible tells us that Samuel's sons, like Eli's sons, are ungodly as well. Notice what the Bible says about them. They do not walk in the ways of their fathers. They didn't walk in his way. You know, like any father, Samuel wanted his children to follow in his footsteps. But here, God reminds us and teaches us again that God doesn't have grandchildren. And just because Samuel is faithful, there's no guarantee that his children will be also. They failed to walk in their father's way. Not only did they fail to walk in in their father's way, the Bible says that they went after gain. Rather than seeing their position as a blessed privilege, they saw it as a means to profit. As in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and, and verse 2, they were lovers of pleasure, Lovers of money more than lovers of God. Like Demas in 2 Timothy. They fell in love with this world and they forsook the things of God. Unlike Moses, whom the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 20. Six, considered the reproach of Christ of greater value and greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. But not these, not Samuel's sons. They went after gain 
They didn't walk in their father's way. The Bible says that they took bribes and perverted justice. They were selfish. They were ambitious. They were irreverent. They were ungodly. There apparently was a way. There was a way that was set before them by the example that Samuel had given them, and they refused to walk in that way. Isn't it interesting that it says they did not follow in the way of their father because apparently Samuel had set before them the way. But they didn't walk in. I think there's a couple of messages in this for us. There's a message to parents. There is indeed a message to parents. That is, it is possible for faithful parents to have wayward children. Our faith is not a guarantee of the faith of our offspring. And yet, therefore, let me encourage you, indeed, parents, let me admonish you to do, as the Bible says over and over again, to raise our children in the fear of the Lord. To set before them a, a godly way. To raise them with reverence for God. To set before them always the things of God. So they can have a clear picture of who God is, what God says, and what God requires. Raise them up to fear the Lord. You do that by living consistently before them. Someone has rightly said, don't worry that your children don't listen to you. Be more concerned that they're watching you. Don't open your Bible on Sunday and let it disappear every other day of the week. Don't make a big deal out of grades and make little to no deal out of spiritual growth. I cannot tell you how many times I've seen students go off to school, straight A's from high school, honor societies from high school, but spiritually wilt, don't attend church, get caught up in the things of the world. But oh, their parents made much of their grades. I'd rather have a B and C student who was on fire for Jesus than a Rhodes Scholar who was lukewarm. Be careful. You're not congratulating them that they make the honor roll. But you give no attention to the fact that they are spiritually weak and anemic. Don't let them see that you never miss work, but you too easily and frequently are willing to miss church. Oh, goodness gracious. I see it far too often. 
a man and a woman thinks that it's their primary responsibility to put food on the table. Men, that is not your primary responsibility. Your primary responsibility is to, to put before your family the bread of life. Yet still, still, see kids watch their parents too easily, too frequently be willing to skip out on the community of saints. But God forbid that they would ever miss a day at work. There's instruction here. Parents. Isn't it also the need to don't lay hands on your children too quickly? Notice, you know, we not only think too highly of ourselves, we think too highly of our children. Samuel thought too highly of his kids. Doesn't say that God appointed them as judges, says Samuel appointed them. Ah, I see it too often. Think way too highly of them. It's because they can recite for us the Bible stories. Just because they want to take communion. Just because they can pray after you pray. We get all excited thinking that there's an effectual work in their hearts. Be careful that you don't lay hands on them too quickly. How many of you can give testimony to being baptized two or three or four times? Because somebody laid hands on you too quickly. Not willing to wait and to see spiritual fruit in their lives. Fruit of faith, fruits of repentance. As my friend Vody would say, you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch. Listen, there's an instruction here. We ought to be putting Christ before our children at every turn. Put Christ before their eyes, not only in word, but put Christ before their eyes in deed. Open the word and then seek to live out that word faithfully and trust Christ. Trust Christ with the outcome, knowing that ultimately salvation is of the Lord. Trusting him, but laying before them the way. And then you walk in it and pray to God that they would walk in it as well. There's an instruction here for parents, but there's also a message here for children. Listen, young people. If you have parents seeking to live faithfully before the Lord, be careful. Be careful that you heed their lives. Be careful. 
Don't take lightly that God has placed you in a family of faith. Don't take lightly that God has placed you in a community of faith. The warning in Hebrews chapter 10 is that you don't trample underfoot the Son of God or insult the Spirit of grace. For your sins are just that much worse if you reject things of God. But to whom much is given, much is required. And that you have been placed in a family of faith, that you have been placed in a community of faith, don't you dare trample that underfoot. Woe unto you on the day of judgment if you had received all of the privileges of hearing the word of God preached, seeing it lived out before you, experiencing the sacraments, seeing the power of the spirit of God in people's lives, and you still turned away. Woe unto you, young man, young lady. Be wary, be wary of your desire to get out from under your parents' restrictions. So that is nothing but one step toward your desire to get out from under God. Be careful what you ask for. The grass is not greener. On the other side of that fence, your parents are not perfect, but neither are you. <laughs> and therefore, when they disappoint you, and they will, don't turn from God. It is then that you turn to God. Your parents are frail, and they have clay feet. But in the judgment, God will not ask you what your parents did with Jesus. God is going to ask you what you did with Jesus. It is not then when they disappoint that you turn away from God. It is then all the more that you need to turn to God and place your trust in him and not them. Unfortunately, Samuel's sons did not turn to God. They turned away from God. Like Eli's sons, they turned away and showed themselves unfaithful. And the nation of Israel saw this. They saw this. And they rejected Joel and Abijah, and rightly so. But in their rejection of Joel and Abijah, we see manifest their foolishness. Because rather than turning to God, they turn to their own hearts. 
They turn to their own desires and say, no, Samuel, we don't want another judge. We want a king. We want a king. You know, actually, there's, there wasn't anything wrong with their desire for a king. God had anticipated that. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, if you go back and you read that chapter, you'll see that God had anticipated them desiring and wanting a king, and therefore he lays out the the guidelines for the monarchy and how it to be a man that God chooses and how he is to live and govern according to the will of God. So their desire for a king is not altogether wrong. The problem is that they wanted a king at all costs. Their desire for a king even supplanted their desire for God. And therefore, they were willing to reject God in order to have a king. In other words, they went the wrong way again. They went the wrong way again. They did not seek God's direction. They don't ask for a prophet like Samuel, but they want a king. And it seemed to them like the right thing to do. It seemed like the right thing to do. They looked around at the other nations. They saw the prosperity of the wicked. And it seemed like the right thing to do. Now, what does Proverbs 14 and 12 and 16 and 25 tell us? Again and again. Now, there is a way that seems right to a man. But his end is the way of death. Just because, just because it seems right doesn't mean it's right. You can always, you can always find somebody who's going to agree with a foolish decision. Search long enough Ask wide enough, sooner or later, you'll find somebody who's going to agree with a foolish decision. Just because it seems right, just because it feels right, doesn't make it right. You know, I often hear Christians in their frustration thinking of the restrictions that, quote-unquote, God has placed on them. Thinking that it's a killjoy, that they have no excitement in their life, and they're looking for fun and exciting things. And that God is keeping these things from them. He's keeping from them what they really desire in their heart. They would move beyond their own fickle and empty emotions and feelings. They would understand that it is not that God is seeking to keep good things from us. 
He wants us to have all of the good things, all of the best things. He just desires for us to have him in his time according to his way for his glory and for our good. And yet and still, God has evidenced this over and over again in the life of the nation they still again went the wrong way. The reason is, it's because they had the wrong motives. Why did they want a king? For the glory of God? No. They wanted a king so that they could be like the other nations. See that in verse 5 and verse 20? They wanted to be like the other nations. What they failed to understand and to comprehend is that they were not like the other nations. When God had chosen them, they ceased to be like the other nations. Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6. God says to the nation of Israel, for you are a people holy to the Lord, your God. They were a holy people. For the Lord, your God, has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. They were not like the other nations. They worshiped differently. They ate differently. They live differently. They work differently. They loved differently. They were different. But unfortunately, the nation of Israel had grown tired of being unique. They had grown weary of being different. They had decided that life under the guidance and the direction of God was too slow, too different, stood out too much. Do you understand this and hear this? God's people have never honored God. By becoming like or imitating the world. Never. Never. God's people are always different. This is not something that God simply said to the nation of Israel. This is what the Bible says to us. To those covenant people, those Christians, those covenant people of God in the world now. Christians are different. Christ makes us different. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Peter says to the Christians, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possessions that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You and I are different. If you are a Christian this morning, if you have professed faith in Christ, 
And you are different from the world. The Bible says this over and over again. You are alive, the world is dead. You have sight. The unbeliever is blind. You are a child of light. The unbeliever walks around in darkness. You have a different talk. I know it doesn't always seem that way, but you should. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 7. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. This is not the unbelieving world to to, to whom this comes. This is Christians. We're different. We don't talk like they do. We don't walk like they do. What tells us, again, in Colossians, that we are to be walking and living in Christ, not in this world. In fact, we love differently, don't we? 1 John chapter 2 and verse 17 tells us, We do not love the world, nor the things of the world. Because if we love the world, the love of the Father is not in us. We walk, talk, we live, we love differently. We don't look around to the world and let the world set our standards, let the world set our agenda. We're different. And unfortunately, if there's anything that marks out this generation, it is how easily we seek to imitate the world. It's amazing. It's amazing to me. For some ungodly reason, we have been convinced that the best way to reach the world is to become like the world. You see it all the time. And my question to that is, where is the command of God for that foolishness? We're not called to make people feel comfortable around us. If an unbeliever walks in this church... They should feel a level of discomfort. There should be some things in here that they don't understand. We are not in here seeking to entertain goats. Our job is to encourage and feed the sheep. Unfortunately, oftentimes, we go into church And Sunday morning is a little different from Saturday night. Where is the reverence? Where is the holiness? Where is the difference? We 
are a holy people, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. And these holy things are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. The man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God. Period. The man without the spirit does not accept the things that comes from the spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So don't come up to me and ask me, how come I don't explain everything for the unbelieving ear can absolutely understand everything? Because I'm going to tell you they can't. These are holy things. These are things of the spirit that are spiritually discerned that the man or woman without the spirit cannot understand, nor do they accept. I'm taking our cues from the world. Take them from God. Now looking around. Trying to see what the latest and the greatest and the fattest things in the world. Bring them into the church so that we can attract the world. We are here to offer the world the alternative. When the nation saw Israel, they were to see the difference that God makes in a nation. When an unbeliever comes into your life, they ought to see the difference that the gospel makes in your life. When they come into the church, they ought to see the difference that the gospel makes in a church. And there ought to be a difference. Woe to us if there isn't one. Remember, we not only want to do what God wants us to do, We want to do it God's way. But that is Israel's problem. They wouldn't listen. They just wouldn't listen. Like some of you, you're just not hearing me. They just wouldn't listen. They insisted on having their own way. A rebellion is not new. God has patiently put up with their disobedience in the past. So he says to them, Samuel, you tell them, be careful what you ask for. Be careful what you ask for. Here again, beloved, is the grace of God to them. It is to them in that he clearly lets them know the consequences for their actions. Don't ever say, don't ever say, God hadn't laid it out clearly. He has. 
You want to disobey and live your life in opposition to God. Don't blame it on God for not having laid it out clearly. He has. So he does here. He loves you too much not to lay it out clearly. He lays it out for them. He essentially says, listen, everything that glitters is not gold. You want a king? This is what he's going to do. He's going to rob you. He's going to take the best that you have. He's going to put it into his own service. He's going to puff himself up. And when he has taken all that you have, when he has made of himself much, then he's going to turn around and use you as his servants. He's going to do it. And the thing and the thing that you want so much is going to be the thing that ultimately is your demise. I tells them, and they insist. <laughs> Isn't it interesting? Yet God grants their request. I find it so interesting that God is willing at times to give us what our sinful heart asks for, for the purpose of moving us to Him in His grace. Can I get Amen. This is amazing to me. Once again, here is evidence, as far as I am concerned, that God had every reason to just disregard Israel. Throw them off. Throw them away. After all that he has done for them. After all the blessings. After all the promises. Once again, They slap him in the face. And what does God do? He says, okay. He grants them what they ask. Why? Because God is faithful. And you know what? And we need to understand this. God is faithful, not much, not so much to you and not so much to me, but God is faithful to himself. He has promised. These are his people. He has an agenda. He has a design. He has a decree. He is working out his plan of salvation through this nation, ultimately onto Christ on the cross. And he is not going to let the sinfulness of these petty people deter his plan. Yes, yeah, Samuel, give them what they want. Because I am able. To turn everything for good. For their good and ultimately for his glory. Why? 
Because God is faithful. Do you know that Israel's request indeed led to Saul in a demonstration of Israel's sin, but then ultimately in the grace of God and the plan of God led to David. The reason why Israel gets David is because God takes their sinful mistakes and turns it into evidence of his mercy. Isn't that the promise that we all hold on to in Romans chapter 8? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, all things, all things work together for good. All things, including your sinful mistakes, your disobedience, your rebelliousness. God is able to turn all things. Why? Because even when you are faithless, tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he remains faithful. Even when you deny him, he cannot deny himself. And he has promised. If you are saved this morning, if you are really saved this morning, if you have truly come into the knowledge and the power of Jesus Christ, then do understand that your sin is not going to deter God from getting you to heaven because he is faithful and he has promised that he's going to get you there. He's going to take your sin. He's going to turn it. You're going to see the evidence of his mercy. You're going to see the glory of his grace. Because then you will know there's only one reason why I made it. The only reason that I made it to heaven. It's because he is faithful. He is faithful. And that's why we call him that. That's why we call him faithful. Faithful he is. And faithful he will always be. That's why we call him faithful. Oh, brothers and sisters. Listen, it's God. It's always God. It's always Jesus Christ. And that's all God ever asked. Is that we trust in his faithfulness. Not our own hearts. Not the fickle and the frailty of our own emotions. Trust him who has promised. And in a world where everyone is going the wrong way, 
trust he who has promised. 